Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Long Misunderstood, Baked Beans Are Busting Loose, by Claire Ansbury. Liz Young has an article, Online Return Fees Put Off Shoppers. Wileen Soon wrote, At this hot party, the honoree might chew the decor. Then Laura Cucusto and Nicole Friedman wrote, Real Estate commissions are targeted as unfair fee. And we'll follow that up with an article by Anne-Marie Chocker, Hot New Way to Network, Cold Plunges. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Long Misunderstood, Baked Beans Are Busting Loose. Baked beans are entering new territories and legume lovers are torn. Take pizza, for example. Kraft Heinz began selling frozen pizza topped with baked beans in the United Kingdom last year, bringing back a limited edition offering from 2002. Beans on pizza is worse than pineapple, one critic posted on social media in response to Heinz announcements. Others gushed. OMG, baked beans pizza is back. I've wanted this to come back for years. The pizza, says Heinz, is part of its Beans Liberation Campaign to free beans from the can. Other efforts include stuffing baked beans into frozen hash brown potatoes and combining baked beans with parsnips, carrot, and spices to form curry-flavored nuggets, currently available in the UK. There is a real demand for baked bean interventions, says Charles Fontanelli, New Ventures Director for Kraft Heinz Northern Europe. In the United States, the acknowledged birthplace of commercially canned baked beans, baked beans remain in the can, but producers are spicing things up, adding bourbon flavor, Dr. Pepper, apricots, and jalapenos. It's been seen as a humble food forever, and now it's having its moment in the sun, says Kat Kavner, who experimented in her kitchen during the pandemic, adding fruit to baked beans. Cherry bombed. Felt too heavy. Apricot, however, was bright and tangy, says Kavner, co-founder of Heyday Canning Lineup, which sells apricot-glazed baked beans along with kimchi sesame navy beans. Baked beans long lack variety and tasted largely the same through the years, although that is changing as bean makers woo younger eaters interested in spicy ethnic dishes. Serious Bean, which makes several canned bean products, suggests using its Dr. Pepper flavored baked beans when making coconut curry chicken. There's a place for beans in everything, says co-founder Trey Taylor. Another image issue, the Beans, Beans, the Magical Fruit chant that made baked beans and their fans the butt of jokes. That too is changing. 
Bush Brothers and Company, one of the largest baked bean makers in the United States, heard that singer Josh Groban loved legumes and asked him to come up with an alternative baked bean ballad. The company wanted a song that would pay appropriate tribute to beans and maybe right the wrongs done through all the other poems, says Drew Everett, chairman and fourth generation of Bush family members. Groban did and included a verse addressing the childhood rhyme directly. It's not a fruit, and the reason you toot is sometimes called olisaccharides, referring to the sugar in beans that can create gas in your lower intestine. He also made a music video, with his dad making a cameo appearance. For a schmaltzy affair or dad's barbecue grilling, or out of the can like a cowboy villain, here's to beans, beautiful beans. Bush Brothers which calls itself That Beautiful Bean Company, overhauled its bean museum in Chestnut Hill, Tennessee, where visitors can wander through the can openers through the year's display, weigh themselves in beans, and access recipes for dozens of varieties, including new higher-end baked beans, one with chipotle sauce and another with bourbon flavor. People are passionate about baked beans and how to eat them. The British canned version tends to have beans in a thinner tomato sauce, which is popular on toast for breakfast. Americans favor a sweet brown sugar flavor at cookouts. They engage in a baked bean brouhaha on social media. What is with American hostility towards baked beans on toast, asked one Reddit user in a forum which generated close to 500 responses. This discussion is not going away, says Christina Conte, a Scottish-Italian cook living in Los Angeles and a world porridge champion. Growing up in Scotland, she ate beans on toast for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, sometimes, and still does. Americans don't know how delicious the snack is or how to even make it, she says, often insisting on making baked beans from scratch when the authentic British approach calls for canned baked beans. Baked beans are misunderstood, says Meg McCuntapt, author of The Truth About Baked Beans, which debunks the myth that pilgrims learned how to make baked beans with maple syrup and and bear fat from Native Americans. Muckenhop, who also wrote Cabbage, A Global History, says canned beans aren't baked but boiled or steamed and New Englanders adopted rather than created the dish. Barry Kirk of Port Talbot, Wales, who changed his name to Captain Beanie, operated a baked bean museum in his flat. On his 60th birthday, he had 60 baked beans tattooed on his hand to raise money for charity. Captain Beanie, 69, closed his museum earlier this year because his flat was being remodeled. He donated his baked bean memorabilia to another museum, but kept his custom-made coffin covered with baked bean images and inscribed with, Rest in Peace, Captain Beanie, Bean There, Done That. And now... Online return fees put off shoppers. 
New fees for online consumers to send back goods appear to be cutting back on returns as retailers hoped, but they could be costing companies' customers heading into the holiday season. About one-third of companies surveyed by logistics company Happy Returns say they have lost customers since they began charging consumer fees to return items that they purchased online. That suggests merchants are seeing a backlash even as more than half of them say the tactic has slowed the flood of goods they have seen coming back into their warehouses over the past three years. Tom Enright, an analyst at research firm Gartner, said retailers risk alienating customers with the charges as the holiday shopping season approaches when returns often peak alongside increasing sales. Retailers last year expected nearly 18% of merchandise sold during the holiday season to be returned, according to the National Retail Federation. By bringing in a returns fee, you're at very best going to lose customers, as a retailer, Enright said. You're certainly not going to gain anyone because you won't attract people to buy from you by making it more expensive for them to do so. Returns have long been a concern for retailers, but most have been willing to absorb the extra shipping and logistics costs because they saw it as crucial to help attract customers and build sales volumes. Many merchants have been rolling out the extra charges since the surge in e-commerce sales at the onset of the pandemic in 2020 pushed enormous volumes into home delivery networks and began weighing more heavily on profits. Consumers during the pandemic got used to ordering items such as apparel in several sizes and colors at once to try on at home, sending back whatever they didn't like. Shoppers returned about 16.5% of items they purchased online in 2022, up from 9.6% in 2019, according to data from APRIS Retail and the National Retail Federation. The returns trigger more shipping, warehousing, and labor costs to process return packages, evaluate the condition of the items, and restock goods where possible. Companies can lose some 50% of their margin when customers return items, according to Gartner. Retailers are looking at various tactics to limit the practice. Those include alerts to shoppers about items that are frequently sent back, online twos to help consumers see how apparel will fit them, and discounts when customers agree in advance to keep whatever they buy. Amazon and fast fashion retailers H&M and Zara are among those that have started charging return fees. Some also try to press shoppers to bring items back to the stores where they might buy something else and retailers can process the returns in bulk. Happy Returns said its survey found 81% of retailers implemented some form of return fee within the past year, including for mailing items back and for home pickup. The fees are often relatively low and don't cover the full cost of processing returns, experts say. Amazon charges a $1 fee when shoppers choose to ship returns through United Parcel Service rather than dropping off the items at certain stores. H&M charges $5.99 to send items back through the United States Postal Service 
and eliminates the fee for members of its loyalty program. Zara has a $3.95 fee to mail back returns. A recent survey by supply chain software provider Blue Yonder said 59% of consumers reported tighter return policies, such as return fees, have deterred them from making a purchase. And now, at this hot party, the honoree might chew the decor. Sitara Khan threw a beach party over the summer for her two-year-old, Chloe. Before anyone could even sing happy birthday, Chloe and her six friends pounced and devoured the cake and its bright pink frosting. She 100% loved it, says Khan, a 30-year-old Canadian expatriate in Hong Kong. Chloe, a toy poodle, didn't take as well, however, to the party hat she was made to wear. The pooch shook it off within minutes. Dog birthdays, or bark days, and dog adoption anniversaries are turning into elaborate social events with games, intricate rules for animals and owners alike, and sumptuous special ordered pet safe treats. A YouGov survey in July of around 460 American dog owners found close to half have celebrated their pets' birthdays and given them birthday gifts. Koei's savory cake contained beef, carrots, and mashed potatoes. The pet owners in attendance spent much of the afternoon relaxing, drinking beer, and enjoying people snacks, while watching the pups chase each other and play in the water. Khan says they just had to make sure the dogs weren't ingesting too much sand and stayed hydrated in the heat. At District Dog, a dog bakery and pet supplies store in Brooklyn, New York, owner B. Badomaher believes dogs can sense when something special in their honor is in the works. Like, they get the idea, she says. I mean, I am convinced my dog knew when it was her birthday. Nicola Shohabrakani, who founded and runs London Dog Party Company, says she has planned dog parties, as the events are known, for actors, entrepreneurs, and celebrities at chateaus in the south of France, on Hollywood sets, and at private estates around the world. Well before the events, Shobrakani requires each human guest to fill out a questionnaire disclosing allergies, eczema, or other health issues, and any past dog encounters that have left them jittery. The dog owners have, are also surveyed about their pets, including their dog's propensity towards barking and biting. At the parties, London Dog Party Company separates the dogs into groups by size and assigns dog minders to such groups. Sobrakani also has a dog trainer and a dog behavior therapist on site to handle unforeseen issues. Each dog owner, meanwhile, is issued a buzzer the size of an espresso saucer. If Sobrakani's staff sees a dog behaving untowardly, they will ping the owner and the buzzer will vibrate and emit a red light. The pet owner must then consult with staff and help calm the situation. London Dog Party Company also sets up quiet corners, set off by a picket fence and adorned with flowers, 
where nervous pooches and introverted human guests can take a time out. Party tunes include soothing classical music, Tchaikovsky's ballet numbers are a favorite, to calm nerves. You've got this insane sort of mishmash of emotions, animal behavior and human behavior, and then the interacting of both of those, says Shobrakani. In Los Angeles, Chevy Chen, a 38-year-old film producer, hosted a Barbenheimer-themed party for his four-year-old pup, Gene, this past summer. The festivities took place at the swimming pool at Chen's Hollywood apartment complex, and the guests included a group of dogs Gene was familiar with. Gene, a rescue that might be part Dachshund and part Chihuahua, donned a pink tutu, a pair of goggles, and a small necktie, and his dog friends dressed similarly. They wandered about sniffing each other's butts, munching on treats, and taking leisurely dips in the pool. The dog owners and their pets posed for photos in a bright pink cardboard photo booth that resembled a Barbie toy box. A bit of party drama broke out. Two canine guests didn't get on so well, so their owners took turns locking up each dog in the apartment so the other pooch could enjoy the party for a little while says Chen. Dogs are like people, he says, of the drama. Not a well, a kavapoo on Australia with more than 11,800 Instagram followers had a birthday party this year at a dog daycare center in a Sydney suburb. His owner, Maria Elena Sabalos, paid for some of Nahuel's friends to spend half a day at the center and attend his party without their owners. The dogs munched on vegetarian cupcakes and treats and posed for a group photo with a human in a dog suit. Sabalos, who is in her mid-fifties and runs a dog supplies online store, says it was easier than hosting an outdoor shindig with people present. If I'm doing it in a park, it's going to be stressful because there will be humans there and I need to take champagne, she says. Amy Gross and her partner recently celebrated the sixth birthday of their dog, Rufus, with a picnic on the gardens of Hampton Court Palace, an elegant London building constructed in the 16th century. We wanted it to be a perfect day for him, with all of his favorite things, says Cross, a 28-year-old content creator. Rufus paddled in the water at the edge of the River Thames and played with sticks and a ball. His owners prepared a mini shepherd's pie for his dinner, a beef sausage with a candle on it, and five presents wrapped in tissue paper. His favorite part is just ripping all the paper up, says Cross, who came prepared with a bag to collect the shredded tissue. Kenzo, a young Labrador retriever, celebrated his first birthday with seven siblings from the same litter. Their owners connected via a WhatsApp group and arranged to meet at a water park for dogs in Singapore. Ho Hu Mun, Kenzo's owner, was eager to reunite the pups, even though they didn't seem to remember each other when they met. The party was going well until Kenzo went to the pool, squatted, and relieved himself. That sparked a mad rush to contain the spillage and then to clean up the pool, recalls Ho a 49-year-old doctor. He didn't blame the pooch. Dogs get excited, he said.
And now, real estate commissions are targeted as unfair fee. In recent years, technology has made a host of consumer transactions cheaper, from booking a vacation to buying stocks. But commission rates for selling a home haven't really budged. That could soon change. A pair of class action lawsuits challenging real estate industry rules, including one that went to trial beginning this week and continued pressure from United States antitrust officials, are threatening to disrupt the compensation model that hasn't meaningfully changed in decades. Home buyers rarely pay their agents. Instead, sellers pay their own agents, who in turn share their commissions with the buyer's representative. In a typical transaction, total agent commissions are 5% to 6% of the sale price. For a $400,000 home purchase, that is roughly $20,000, split two ways. In most markets, publishing the amount of compensation offered to the buyer's agent is a condition for listing a home on a multiple listing service vital tool for marketing a home. In the current environment, trying an alternative approach can be risky. When John Anderson decided to sell his cocky-colored three-bedroom house in Colorado Springs, Colorado, four years ago, the veteran home seller was fed up with paying a real estate agent tens of thousands of dollars. He hired a low-fee brokerage company, Rex, that was bucking a widespread industry rule by not guaranteeing the seller would pay a commission to the home buyer's agent. At the time, homes were often selling in days, but for several weeks, Anderson said virtually no buyers even toured his home. It eventually sold for $15,000 less than he originally listed it for. I believe that when my house went on the market through Rex, that we were completely and utterly blackballed by the real estate market, he said. Rex, which is now defunct, recorded a call with a buyer's agent interested in Anderson home until she realized there was no guaranteed commission. I won't bother to show it, she said. A former Rex data scientist said the recording and about 600 similar ones have been turned over to the plaintiff's attorneys and the Justice Department. The plaintiffs in the class actions, who are home sellers in different regions of the country, say the long-standing industry rules amount to a conspiracy to keep costs high in violation of United States antitrust law. Buyers, they say, have little incentive to negotiate with their agents because they don't pay them directly, while sellers are loath to experiment with a lower commission rate for fear that agents will steer clients away from their home. An academic study released provides some evidence of those concerns. It found that home listings offering lower buyers' agents' commissions take significantly more time to sell and are much less likely to sell at all, even after controlling for factors such as the home's age and location. The National Association of Realtors, a defendant in both cases, says the current system helps first-time home buyers and those with modest means by sparing them a significant upfront cost when purchasing a home. Buyers might otherwise put themselves at a disadvantage by not having their own agent, the group says. What is at stake here is the future of buyer representation, said Katie Johnson, NAR's chief legal officer. In court documents, 
The association said seller's agents pay the commissions to buyer's agents to attract more interest in their homes. In a recent report, Ryan Tomasello, a real estate industry analyst with Keefe, Byred, and Woods, predicted that the lawsuits could lead to a 30% reduction in the $100 billion that Americans pay in real estate commissions every year and push well over half of the roughly 1.6 million agents out of the industry. The writing is on the wall given the attacks that the industry has right now from all sides, Tomasello said. Ever since Zillow went online in 2006 and attracted more than 1 million visitors in the first few days, which crashed the site, the residential brokerage industry has seemed on the cusp of radical change. About half of buyers now find their house online. Cracks in the traditional industry structure are starting to show. Two major brokerages, Anywhere Real Estate and Remax Holdings, both agreed to settle claims against them in the two class action suits for almost $140 million combined. The firms, which admitted no wrongdoing, agreed not to require their agents to belong to NAR. Another brokerage, Redfin, which isn't a defendant in the class actions, recently announced it was requiring many of its agents to leave NAR. The trade group is defending the indefensible in the lawsuits, says company chief executive Glenn Kelman. The case currently on trial is unfolding in a Kansas City, Missouri courtroom where a federal jury is considering claims by home sellers in several Midwestern states against NAR and major national brokerage companies. Another class action, based in an Illinois federal court, involves 20 markets and could go to trial next year. Plaintiffs in both suits are claiming damages that could total more than $40 billion, according to Tomasello's calculations. Now, let's follow that up with a hot new way to network, cold plunges. Anson Whitmer had a bracing solution to a flagging afternoon meeting at his company's recent employee retreat. We need to shake things up, he said, clapping his hands to wake one dozing attendee. Whitmer, chief executive of Mental, a wellness app, then ushered his fully clothed staff of four into a walk-in shower at the Lake Tahoe retreat site and turned its two nozzles onto ice-cold blast. This feels like being shot by a BB gun, shouted Jason Kyle, Mental's head of content. His inkly drenched co-workers howled and cursed. After a towel dry and change of clothes, Kyle kicked off a brainstain brainstorming exercise on a new audio concept for the app. It was probably our best session of the entire retreat, Kyle said. Cold water immersion has developed in a cult-like following, thanks to wellness guru Wim Hof and celebrity aficionados such as Joe Rogan, Kendall Jenner, and Kevin Hart. Fans of the practice claim that, along with reducing stress and inflammation, the sudden icy sensation boosts mood and mental clarity. So it was probably only a matter of time before the entrepreneur and executive set would adopt it as a business tool and networking tool. 
Now, whether in tubs set between 48 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit or with apps that guide listeners through a chilly shower or cryotherapy sessions in a frigid air chamber, cold therapy has arrived at industry meet and greets, team bonding sessions, and other get-togethers. I often say, make your business deal here, man, says Bob Soliere, a cybersecurity consultant in Alexandria, Virginia, whose fire and ice backyard cold plunge gatherings have become network events. You get a better deal. People's hearts are more open and they're more receptive. Grand Dynamics, a Jackson, Wyoming-based company that organizes more than 100 executive retreats and team-building events a year, says more than half its clients now request some type of cold immersion experience. Otherwise, a Toronto-based company offers sauna and ice bath sessions. Its clientele includes executives looking for a place to network or meet that doesn't involve alcohol, co-founder Robbie Bent says. It's for the high-intensity people always on their phones. Sage Harrison, a Dallas-based private equity investor who heads the North Texas chapter of the Young Presidents Organization, says roughly 20% of the group's members, chief executives under 50, have purchased a cold plunge tub or developed a regular practice. Harrison is redesigning his backyard to include one. Jacob Peters hosts cold plunge parties every few months in Los Angeles. Earlier this month, the 28-year-old entrepreneur had 200 executives over. A sushi chef served mercury-free salmon and a doctor gave a talk on longevity. Near the pool, two cold plunge baths were installed and swimsuit-wearing guests hopped in and out. Then came the handshakes. Rory Garton-Smith, a 32-year-old founder of mobile shopping platform Checkmate, met Peters after his turn taking his two-minute dip, his teeth chattering. Peters recalls tossing him a towel and pinched his concept for a concierge healthcare platform called Superpower. The two men exchanged contact information, and Garton Smith says he made introductions that led to helping raise over a million-dollar round of investments. There's nothing more bonding than suffering together, says Garton Smith. Gym visits and workouts with other investors and founders eventually led to invitations to sauna and cold plunge, he said. He has since met dozens of founders or executives during cold plunge events with whom he ended up doing business with, whether giving feedback on a product or becoming an investor in the company. The discussions are way better than at network events where they are handing out bottles of wine, he says. Mentos Whitmore says he was introduced to plunging in frigid waters by friends in his San Francisco tech network who invited him to hang out after work at a Russian bathhouse featuring saunas near a cold plunge pool. When he remarked how much better he felt afterward, he says his friend replied, this is how adults get high. Soon after, Whitmer installed his own barrel-shaped cold plunge tub next to a sauna in his backyard. He typically purchases two 40-pound bags of ice from a nearby factory, fills the barrels, and invites friends over on Sundays to hang out, switching between the cold water and the hot sun or every few minutes. Some are hesitant to take the plunge, a hurdle that likely will keep the practice from totally eclipsing 
the standard lunch or drinks meetings. Vlad Margulis, head of Mentel's product and design, initially resisted the group shower during the meeting in Lake Tahoe, though he eventually caved. These guys are a little nuts, he says of his work colleagues. He's not sure how the concept would work if the team grew beyond five men, he said. It's not for everyone, said Toronto investment advisor Pierre Girouard, who has that he usually has to know the person a bit before suggesting cold water therapy as a meeting device. Workplace productivity consultant Nick Sonnenberg had never met Megan Strauss in person when he suggested a cold emission meeting, which he does frequently anyway, at a wellness club while she was in New York on business in September. I said, why not, recalls Strout, who runs an executive assistant recruiting firm. Strout wore her bathing suit underneath her leggings and sweater, but then had a second thought. I didn't want to be walking around the meeting afterward in wet clothes, she said. Sonnenberg suggested they do cryotherapy instead. He says he has used the chilly experiences to meet with friends and colleagues before. You're more productive, you feel good, and you give them a memorable experience. So the two donned robes, slippers, and mittens, and entered an air chamber cooled at sub-zero temperatures and talked while shivering. Sonnenberg says he asked Strout about the differences between hiring a chief of staff versus an executive assistant. She proposed jointly coordinating educational seminars. The spa meeting felt vaguely European, she says, and she was surprised at how conversation felt less inhibited. For one thing, Sonnenberg can be a fast talker, Strout says. Made him slow down, she says. By the end of the one-hour session, three minutes in the cryotherapy chamber, followed by coffee at a nearby cafe, she agreed to attend his executive retreat at the end of the month. Though she hadn't met Sonnenberg in person before, she felt that the meetup would be okay. Still, she says, there are definitely some male clients I would have said, hmm, maybe not. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.